This is a pristine forest, rich with biodiversity, a typical tropical forest. But what makes this forest special, it is a peatland forest. Peatlands store a lot of carbon below ground. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, carbon offsets. What if that pristine tropical forest in Borneo could generate money to fund conservation activities and ensure it locks carbon out of the atmosphere by selling credits to companies looking to offset their own emissions? This could be a stream of financing into countries that desperately need financing for their own adaptation, for the protection of nature and for their own resilience and their own green growth in the face of this climate emergency. But carbon offsetting is hugely controversial. Green groups say the schemes are often bogus, don't reduce climate emissions and allow companies to get away with greenwashing. Many observers are afraid of companies using offsets as part of a generic net zero or carbon neutrality pledge before they have taken the necessary steps to reduce their emissions. We talked to this expert who's trying to put in place much needed rules to make voluntary carbon offsetting credible can't engage in activity and then hope that somebody's going to give you a pass down the road if you know that that activity is not legitimately helping you get to your science-based target. And we go to a tropical forest in Indonesia, twice the size of Singapore, that sells carbon credits with a promise to keep the carbon out of the atmosphere and help the local community. If you are not here, a company would have opened this area and converted it into pulp and paper. Basically, all this conservation happened. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy, podcast editor at the World Economic Forum. And with this look at carbon offsets... Can we make it work so that we reduce emissions and that our finance flows? Or are we just creating an awful lot of hot air? Are we just delaying action? And are we actually not solving the problem at all? This is Radio Davos. Have you ever bought a plane ticket, rented a car or ordered something to be delivered and been invited to tick a box and pay a small amount of money to offset the carbon dioxide that will be emitted due to your purchase? Then you have come across one iteration of carbon offsetting. The idea is that as we cannot yet do most of the things we need to do without emitting carbon, at least we can pay for someone somewhere else to do something to suck the equivalent amount of CO2 out of the air or to ensure that they are avoiding creating emissions that they would have caused without your money. It sounds great, but many people are deeply concerned about carbon offsets, saying they're being used as get-out-of-jail-free cards by companies that are failing to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions but can wave their offsets around to prove they are taking action. We have to wipe out the opportunity for greenwashing from large corporations, from any corporations. There is a plethora of net zero pledges being made by companies around the world. And many of them, particularly those from from the fossil fuel industry, are are pure greenwash. Jennifer Morgan, the then head of Greenpeace, talking to me on Radio Davos ahead of last year's climate summit COP26, setting out exactly that argument against offsets. On US TV recently, the comedian John Oliver did a whole episode of his Last Week Tonight show on offsets, highlighting the Wild West system where the lack of rules meant that he himself was able to set up his own carbon offset company, selling offsets in return for not chopping down a tree that he had installed in his own TV studio. So what's going on? Are offsets a ripoff? Or can they help funnel funds to genuine carbon reduction actions while companies and industries make every effort to reduce their own emissions? Later in the show, we'll hear from that forest in Indonesia and hear why the person in charge of the conservation programme that sells the carbon credits 
thinks it does work. But first, I spoke to someone who's working to put rules in place that would make voluntary carbon offsetting credible. Rachel Kite, co-chair of something called the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative, has a very clear-eyed view of how difficult that challenge is, but she also has a genuine hope that it can be achieved. I started by asking Rachel Kite, what is the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative? VCMI was created in 2021. It's a multi-stakeholder initiative and is focused on integrity as the golden thread voluntary carbon markets in that without integrity, and I'll explain what we mean by that, it's going to be very difficult for the voluntary markets to achieve their dual purpose. And their dual purpose is to channel funds into nature, the natural resources, into countries that have a wealth of natural resources and a potential uh, to produce carbon credits, that, that, that this could be a stream of financing into countries that desperately need financing for their own adaptation, for the protection of nature, and for their own resilience and their own green growth in the face of this climate emergency. The second purpose is to actually reduce emissions and that by using market mechanisms, in this case, voluntary market, those companies that are emitting and need to find a way to get to their net zero obligations can use voluntary markets as a potential tool to do so. This multi-stakeholder initiative came together last year to try to develop some guardrails, some, in fact, a rule book for how companies can make claims when they claim that they are net zero using the voluntary carbon markets and using as one part of that potentially offsets. As you will have seen over recent years, there's been more and more and more companies making net zero claims. There's been lots of consternation about whether those claims are legitimate, whether they're science-based. And there's been a, a lot of concern that uh, very large global companies are doing deals with small developing countries where they're trying to use the sequestration capability of the nature in those small countries to offset their emissions from their continuing business plans. And that's the accusation of greenwash that we've heard so articulately put forward by, in particular, the youth movement around the world. So real need for companies to meet uh, their net zero claims, real need for finance to flow to protect nature. Can we make it work so that we reduce emissions and that our finance flows? Or are we just creating an awful lot of hot air? Are we just delaying action? And are we actually not solving the problem at all? That was the question that VCMI was sort of set up to look at, um, together with many others that work on the issues of the voluntary carbon markets. Who's behind VCMI then? Who put this together? VCMI was funded by the British government and the Children's Investment uh, Fund Foundation initially. In the next phase, we'll be funded by a broader set of government and uh, philanthropic actors. The steering committee, which I co-chair together with Tariq Gabesian from uh, Nigeria, is made up of people who have standing sort of in the business world, in the government world, in the civil society and scientific worlds. And there's an expert advisory group that provides the sort of scientific basis upon which we are developing our codes of conduct. And we've been consulting with the private sector, with companies, with civil society, with indigenous peoples and local communities and uh, with regulators and with governments. So the United Nations Development Programme is part of this as well, but importantly because it provides a lot of the support and advice to governments on how they can produce credits that could then be potentially you know, active within the voluntary carbon markets. So multi-stakeholder, funded by government and philanthropy, 
basically one of the initiatives set up to try to make sure that the voluntary carbon markets, if they are going to operate, operate for good. You set out perfectly what kind of the battle lines are. Let's imagine a perfect world where carbon offsetting worked perfectly. What would it look like? Just, just explain in theory how carbon offsetting works. So carbon offsetting is the idea that a party that has excess credits, right, that has an excess of carbon capacity, as it were, and a party that needs credits can trade or can have a relationship whereby the excess credits offset the excess emissions of the other actor. Obviously, there are regulated carbon markets. So in this case, we're talking about voluntary carbon markets, and we're talking about companies and countries in different jurisdictions. There can be voluntary carbon markets within a national jurisdiction, but I think the piece of this which causes so much concern and which offers so much opportunity is the idea that a series of companies in, say, Western Europe could channel uh, resources into the mangroves of Central America, for example, mangroves being a very, very important part of our natural resilience to climate change, having many, many benefits, including an important benefit of carbon sequestration, and that that funding would then help those mangroves be protected, could extend them. You would then have jobs, you would have other kinds of economic activity, you would have pristine natural barriers for storms, etc., and you would have a flow of revenue into that country or into that local community or into the indigenous peoples who would claim those mangroves as their own. So that's the idea, that you've got excess and you've got a need and that you come together. The detail of this and how you account for it, and also, importantly, when you could actually use the voluntary carbon market, that's where the issues come. So the issue is, can a company go to the voluntary carbon market before it has done everything it can to reduce its own emissions? And should it ever actually go to the voluntary carbon market in a world where we're running out of a carbon budget? So wouldn't we only want to see companies reducing their emissions and in fact reducing carbon? The big issue which we have focused on in VCMI is what do you need to do before you could use the voluntary carbon markets? You cannot go to the voluntary carbon markets and offset emissions before you have done everything you can to reduce your emissions from your business model, before you have clearly understood how you are going to get to your net zero targets, before you've done everything that you can, leaving you only with residual emissions. And then if those residual emissions can be considered in a voluntary carbon market, then potentially that could be a use of the voluntary carbon markets. I think what many observers are afraid of is that companies are using offsets as part of a sort of generic net zero or carbon neutrality pledge before they have taken the necessary steps to reduce their emissions. And of course, some companies, while at an enterprise level, aren't clear how they're going to get to net zero, are offering carbon neutral products as well. So you can buy carbon neutral motor oil, etc. And I think some of the product branding remains highly dubious. So companies at the moment, without these guardrails in place, a company is free to kind of write its own rules on this. Say, I've done something, this product is now therefore carbon neutral. Is that, is that what's happening in some cases? Yeah, you're, you've got companies saying that they, that they are going to be net zero by whichever date and that they are then implying that they're carbon neutral now or implying that because they've got a pledge that that's okay now. And I think the important thing to remember is that we're in transition. 
So there's almost no company today that is carbon neutral. I mean, there may be a few, but there are very few. Most companies have a pledge to get there at a certain date and they've got milestones. There are a number of countries, more than 200, that have science-based targets. Those perhaps are the sort of most rigorous and most transparently sort of vetted plans on how to get to carbon neutrality. So at the moment, we're in a voluntary market where there's no rules, there's no governance. And what you're seeing is these sort of voluntary initiatives, ours, another private sector led initiative, which is looking at the rules for the quality of credits with the International Integrity Council on Voluntary Carbon Markets. We've got the science-based targets initiative. So you've got all these different groups coming together and trying to build parts of the scaffold of a voluntary market that actually achieves its purpose. Meanwhile, there's extraordinary demand for high quality uh, or high integrity credits. There's extraordinary demand for credits writ large. As more and more companies have made their net zero pledges, they need to be able to show how they're going to get there. And you've seen sort of the good, the bad and the ugly. You've seen very careful, constructed activity, companies that have done a lot of legwork on understanding how this is going to be part of their strategy. And you can also go into the market and find somebody who will sell you credits from a forest in Siberia that burnt down three years ago. So that everything is there. But I, I think what we're seeing is just this extraordinary pressure on the demand side as the business and financial community has understood the imperative of, of decarbonisation. So how do you envisage this all working out? There seem to be a lot of initiatives. Lots of people are working on this. I mean, I suppose at the end, if this is going to work, there's going to need to be some kind of guarantee. Do you, do you imagine that's ever going to be feasible and how would it work? Well, I, th- I think we're in, a, we're in this sort of very necessary but difficult moment where the rules are not in place. There is no oversight of those rules. And I think the consequences of not operating with integrity will emerge, but they haven't quite emerged yet. And so for many private companies, this is you know extremely discombobulating, right? You are entering into a voluntary carbon market, and you have no guarantee that the trade that you're engaging in is one that's going to be considered high integrity down the line. And there are many, many private actors that will help you with your monitoring verification. There are many companies now springing up that will use satellites and machine learning and AI to sort of give you a sense of whether or not you can claim what you're claiming. So those will be able to do things like, look, here's a forest that's been planted or protected and it's still there. It's not this forest in Siberia that burnt down. Right. But these are private and these are all voluntary. And at the same time, the United Nations is moving along at its pace on regulated carbon markets. And you've got the Secretary General leaning in as well, having established a high-level task force to look at issues of integrity in net zero claims against across all non-state actors. So I think he was very alarmed last year because there is so much activity and there is so much sort of buy-in to getting to net zero at the required timeframe. And yet a lot of that action is well outside a state or a country's jurisdiction and it is in the voluntary sector. And if cities or companies or asset owners or banks or whatever are making net zero claims, as the Secretary General, his responsibility is to know if you add it all up, are we on track or not? And so he's put a group together that is sort of looking at sort of principles uh, for how we think about net zero. But back to the, the position that an ordinary company finds itself in, there is no escaping the fact that you need to have a transition plan and that needs to be science-based. 
because eventually this will get regulated one way or the other. All your activities will end up in front of advertising standards authorities. All your activities will end up in, in front of consumer protection bureaus, all of whom I think will start to get involved. But I think for, for companies now, the difficulty is just picking your way through that, which means that while VCMI can set a rule book for claims that companies make, and ICDCM will come up with principles for a high-quality credit, at the end of the day, integrity starts in the boardroom and starts in the C-suite. And so as a company, you know, you, there, there is no way around that. You can't engage in activity and then hope that somebody's going to give you a pass down the road if you know that that activity is not legitimately helping you get to your science-based target quickly and isn't going to help the country by producing a steady stream of revenue. So if I was a company now, I'm doing all I can to reduce emissions, I'm putting a plan in place, but I want to invest in a project in a mangrove swamp somewhere that's going to do good out there, that's going to suck carbon out of the air, and I've got some budget to do that. What would be my best route to doing that now? What we put out into the public domain in June, a rule book on claims, it's a sort of laddered approach, right? So we've called them VCI, VCMI gold, silver, and bronze. And it basically describes what you would need to do in order to be considered to be a gold caliber participant in the voluntary carbon markets, silver or bronze. And this is to allow for the fact that many companies are at different stages of their development or in different jurisdictions. It's to allow for the fact that different sectors of the economy have different emissions profiles. And it's also based on the assessment that we're in transition and so companies are going to have to get better and that rule books and qualities of credits will improve over time and that the market could work for good. And so I think you know, what I would suggest is you go look at that it will operate also as advice to management consultants, to accounting bodies, and to the other sort of acronyms and NGOs that are in the space that offer support to companies in terms of trying to think through what their strategy of using the voluntary carbon markets is. But basically, you know, you're going to have to reduce emissions. And then if you've got residual emissions at a certain point, there's a legitimate use of a voluntary carbon market. And what we've tried to do in the gold, silver and bronze is sort of give you some guardrails around that. Now, at the moment, we're beta testing it. So the other thing we're really interested in is companies taking it, looking at it, working with it in their own scenarios, and then coming back saying, actually, this would have a perverse impact, or this doesn't work, or this is too complicated, or this is only going to work under certain circumstances. And we've got a number of very big firms and small firms from all over the world sort of taking the first iteration of the rule book and giving us the feedback. And so hopefully by the time we get to November, certainly before we get to the next meeting in Davos, we will have a newer version uh, based on the feedback from companies that have tried to use it. This is such a fraught area in the ways you've pointed out. Wouldn't it be simpler to scrap all of this, tax carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions, use that money then to invest in projects such as the mangrove swamp or whatever, these projects that need to happen, would that simplify it? Why are we making life so complicated for ourselves? Well, yes and no. So, I mean, if we had a magic wand, we would have effective carbon pricing worldwide. We would be investing the proceeds from those carbon taxes into protecting the vulnerable and into natural assets, et cetera. Yes, right? Well, we don't have that wand and it hasn't happened. 
And we can't even in critical markets actually, you know, have a sensible conversation around effective carbon pricing still, even you know, on a day when 125 million people are living under extreme heat. So yes, it would be easier, but we don't have that. Doesn't mean to say we haven't got to keep pushing for regulated carbon markets and for also the regulation of companies, etc., to to take on these issues of carbon risk fully. But in the meantime, market mechanisms give you speed for sure. And there is a legitimate, I think, use of voluntary carbon markets for, for firms. You see, even within some global conglomerates, basically an internal voluntary market between different divisions, between different operations in different parts of the world. And it's perfectly okay, I think, for a company to, even outside of any obligation it feels that it needs to make towards its regulator in terms of its ability to meet net zero, for it to want to be involved in projects around the world or projects even in local communities, whether you're investing in the carbon sequestration or the carbon impact of a resource. So I think you can't sort of say voluntary markets shouldn't exist or whatever. You, yes, it would be much more efficient if we had effective pricing everywhere tomorrow, but we've singularly failed to get to that over the last 20 to 30 years. And so we are where we are. In the way in which we're constructing these markets, we're thinking of carbon as an asset, which the sequestration capability of a forest or a mangrove is an extraordinary asset, which should be able to attract investment. But for a company that is emitting and emitting over and above a plan to get to net zero, that's actually a liability. But at the moment, the markets are constructed as you know, uh, assets on both sides. So I think there are some fairly fundamental discussions that we need to have if we're going to continue to, to build these markets out. And of course, the subtext here is where are the regulators? There's been extraordinary progress in regulators and financial supervisory bodies getting their arms around the climate crisis over the last seven to eight years. But really, we need express lane action if we are to make these kinds of market opportunities work for everybody, which at the end of the day is part of that purposeful voluntary carbon market. The purpose is to help people protect their natural assets and to reduce emissions. And so there, there is much for government regulators to do here. Rachel Kite, co-chair of the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative. So now we know what voluntary carbon offsetting entails, let's hear from someone implementing it on the ground. Darsono Hartono is CEO of Rimba Makmo Utama, an Indonesian company that manages the Katingan Mentaya project, a forest in Borneo, Indonesia, that generates carbon credits. He told me how it works. 15 years ago, my business partner, uh, Rezal Kusumant Manja, who is our CEO, actually gave me a proposition. He said, Darsono, you can save and restore peatland forest, which is a wetland forest, typical forest in Indonesia, provide sustainable livelihood for the people, and finally make profit. Uh, the area of Katingan Mentaya project is about 157,000 hectares. Just to give a comparison, an island of Singapore is about 60,000 hectares, so it's the twice the size of island of Singapore. So it is a huge area. This is a pristine forest, you know, basically rich with biodiversity. You, you can find animals are part of uh, the population here. Uh, the area is 100 kilometers from north to south. That's about 30 kilometers from west to east. It's bounded by two rivers. So um, if you 
look at it uh, flying from above, you probably look at it as if it's a typical tropical forest. But what makes this forest special, it is a peatland forest, where some of you are not familiar. Peatland is peatland store a lot of carbon below ground. Unlike a typical forest where the soil is just a mineral, in peatland forest, the soil is predominantly carbon. So some people would think that after 10,000 years, 20,000 years, peatland forests become coal mining. So I think that's uh, the context. Hence, uh, you know, this project, while we are not the largest in size, only 157,000 hectares, which is still humongous, we produce on average 7 million tons of carbon credit, which makes us the largest project in the world today registered in the volunteer market for the amount of carbon that we produce because of the peatland that it stores so much carbon. So for managing this forest, what kind of conservation measures are you using there? I mean, and what would happen if you weren't managing and conserving this forest? The proposition is if you are not here because we were granted a license called Ecosystem Restoration License, a company would have opened this area and converted it into pulp and paper. Basically, all this conservation would not happen. So what you're saying is if you weren't there, effectively being paid to manage this and conserve this forest, it would be chopped down to make timber and paper. That's correct. So this area, you know, 157,000 hectares from historically, this area would have been converted into what we call a plantation forest, which is a single monoculture forest. But prior to opening and prior to planting those trees, the area has to be drained. Hence, all this emission would have happened. And we are actually avoiding that to happen. So the mission would have come out of the trees and would have come out probably even more importantly from the soil, from this peat soil where all the carbon stored. Tell me, how do the locals feel about this? I mean, the people who live in and around these forests, what's life like for them? If you look at our area, all the locals who live surrounded our, our area, one thing that they do frequently is actually they are farmers. Sometimes they do it activities like slash and burn, so causing all this deforestation to happen. So what we're doing is we are trying to help them to become more productive. So the core activities of Cutting and Mandai Project is about how we can change behavior for the communities so that they become more productive by not deforesting. I can tell you, Robin, it's easier said than done because even for myself, to change behavior when you are 40-some years old is not easy. I'll share with you a small experience that I had. When I went to visit the village in 2015 and 16, I remember, during the early years, we actually tried to convince the farmers of no burning, no chemical practice. Majority of them produce rice because rice have a, a long shelf, right? I mean, they don't produce a horticulture or vegetable because if they cannot find the market to buy it, then it's going to be rotten quickly. And during the dry season, they will have you know, all this wheat will grow and they will just burn the area. They do slash and burn and then they'll plant again. So in 2015, when we tried to introduce the no burning, no chemical activities, I spoke to about 500 farmers and guess how many farmers were interested in our program? Only two. So I think it takes a lot of effort to change this behavior. Of course, now, a few years later, we see that all the changes happen. Now we have a school, what we call a agroecology school that we teach farmers, they, where they exchange ideas and they do all this farming organically and the productivity is even higher than before. So I think it's not easy to change behavior when you're so used to doing something for a long time. One of the criticisms of carbon offsets is that how can we be sure 
that the carbon that is there in the trees and in the soil will stay there. What is keeping this permanent? How do we know that in five years' time it won't be slashed and burned and you know, and all that carbon will be released anyway? So our company, uh, PT Rimba Mangmurutama RMU, will granted a license to operate this area for 60 years. So the license is actually not allowing us to cut the forest. You know, we have to restore and we have to conserve. I mean, that's the sort of like the permanence of what we believe in. But of course, this, this permanence have to be, in a way, can only be sustainable if there's a sustainable financing and benefit coming to the people, right? I mean, it's not fair to keep us to be permanent all the time, but there's no benefit on the ground, particularly for the communities, because they depend on the forest for their livelihood. So that's why we try to transform this in our work with communities in terms of how we can traditionally change the behavior that burning and doing deforestation into something more productive. I share with you a small example that we are looking to do. In one of the small villages, we are going to invest quite a significant amount of money. Instead of just traditionally uh, have a fish farming activities, we are actually building a processing fish, which is a snakehead fish, into a very high quality albumin, which is a pharmaceutical product coming out. So I think that's what we want to be. You know, with the good news is with this all carbon financing that we receive by selling carbon credit, we will be able to do that. We will be able to build business or sustainable livelihood program that leapfrogging just a traditional farming, uh, breeding into much higher quality product that can be produced. And not only that, it will generate income for the communities, but also building the capacity of this community to in a way that they have the, the ownership, that they, they think that they can also to more productive activities. So I think uh, the good news is Katingan Mentai Project, you know, we always welcome experiment. We, are, we always welcome innovation and creativity. And I think that's how we survive. Isn't there an element of colonialism about this? We've got countries in the West polluting, emitting carbon, and they're basically paying an area like yours to solve the problem for them to some extent. That's what one of the many criticisms of, of carbon offsetting would be. There's a kind of colonial aspect to this. So tell us, how do, how do Indonesians and, and people you work with feel about this? One thing, uh, you know, as the largest project in the world, we're also being framed that uh, we are such a large company, we, we, we manage such a big of land. So I think uh, what uh, people frame us 15 years ago is like this is a new neocolonialism. What different this time, I feel, is... When you look into this business particularly, because the fact is this business is producing environmental services in terms of certificate or carbon credit, it needs a lot of credibility. It needs a lot of transparency. I mean, you need a strong certification. But more importantly for us is it's about how we can transparently working with communities and give the best. So I think it's totally the opposite of colonialism because this is a business where not only that we are protecting the environment, most importantly, we have to be inclusive and transparent about it. I mean, unlike, you know, in, the, in other sectors where you do coal mining and oil and gas, sometimes the physical delivery of that product make it people close their eyes if anything happened on the ground. So I think our product is totally different. Hence, throughout this transformation of 15 years as the largest project in the world, people can see that we are doing all the things that is totally anti-colonialism because we are giving everything for community. But the question become, 
if people buying credit from us, are they also a colonialism system? But I think it has to go back to the whole idea of developed country and developing countries, how you know we can have common different responsibility. I think by buying offset from developed country into developing country, you can see the benefit that you're doing not only for the environment, but most importantly for community. So I would say that this is totally not colonialism. I think this is a new way of doing business to a point where if we want to solve the climate change issue and the inequality issue, this is a way to go. That's very interesting. So what you're saying is this isn't the West or the, the global North paying emerging economies to stay underdeveloped. You're saying actually this money can help develop uh, an area like yours, but in a sustainable way. Absolutely. I think particularly if you look at into a type of forest that we have, it's better to be conserved rather than being cultivated. So, of course, you know, the argument is not as easy as like, oh, you totally stop development in a developing country. But I think you can identify what are the natural resources that can be kept what are the natural resources that better to be stored than being cultivated and part of development? But I think development doesn't necessarily believe in the industrialization anymore, right? That we believe that it has to be producing coal. I mean, a lot of the things that we produce nowadays, you know, you can see a renewable energy is actually keeping all these natural resources intact. You, you don't give yourself room for development. It's just that the way to develop are different than before. Hence, we need a lot of financing from the developed world to help us. I mean, a country like Indonesia, we need a lot of help in terms of financing us through this transition of decarbonization. So it is, in a way, you can frame it as colonialism if you're not helping us, right? But I think if you are helping us and really make us in a way that we can decarbonize it, we can still have our development with clean energy, for example. I don't see that as a colonialism like you frame it, Robert. Darsono Hartono, CEO of Rimba Makmo Utama. Earlier you heard Rachel Kite, co-chair of the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative. You can find links to their work in the transcript that accompanies this podcast. Find that at wf.ch slash podcast, where you can find our sister podcast, Meet the Leader, and the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. And when it comes to trees and forests, look out for a report coming later this month by the World Economic Forum called Forest for Climate, which looks at approaches to forest conservation. It's out in the second half of September 2022. Should be on the URL www.weforum.org slash forests-for-climate. Please subscribe to this podcast, Radio Davos, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with thanks to my colleague, Vidi Batia. Editing was by Jerry Johansson. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. Radio Davos will be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.